The Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello, and welcome to the Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. I'm here by the Serpentine in London's Hyde Park, because I'm about to go over the road to the Serpentine Sackler Gallery, where Rose Wiley, the British painter, this week opened her first major institutional show in London. You can hear my interview with Rose later in the podcast. But first this week, we're in auction season for antiquities, and this felt like a good moment to take stock of the situation within the trade. After reports of so-called Islamic State looting in the Middle East, controversial new export laws in Germany, and even a seizure at the Tefaf Art Fair in New York earlier this year. I went to discuss these and other matters with Martin Clist, a dealer at the Charles E. Gallery in London. Martin, I wonder if we might begin by assessing the health of the antiquities trade at the moment. Well, I think it's in a pretty strong position. It's gone through years of being scrutinised by people, including the trade itself. Our, we as dealers are scrutinising ourselves. And um, I'm part of an organisation called IADA, the International Association of Dealers in Ancient Art. And we have very strict rules about how we comport ourselves and how we do business. And I think that's something which probably many other areas of the art world have yet to do themselves. So I think... Um, in that respect, we come from a, we're trying to work from a very clean sheet. And that's had an effect on how people perceive us. So I think a lot of people are fascinated by antiquities, both by their beauty and by their history. And they understand that if they're buying from a reptile dealer, they pretty much in safe hands. Am I right in thinking that Sotheby's abandoned antiquities auctions at one stage and, and has now reinstated them? Well, they abandoned them in London for a while. Um, but they continue to hold them in New York. Christie's have always held their auctions in London and New York as well. Um, so London recently has, uh, last year in fact, um, the department there has, has reopened, not strictly as antiquities or ancient art. I think they call it more like ancient sculpture. It's slightly more wide-ranging, um, or narrowing actually, in effect. Um, they, it's mainly Greek and Roman sculpture, has some Egyptian, um, very, very little Near Eastern. But um, the great thing about Sotheby's is that they, and Christie's too, and Bonhams, is that there's a great deal of um, looking into the provenance. It's a, it's a particular trait of, of Sotheby's, and the way that they are dealing with it is being led by a guy called Florent Heinz. Um, and he's, he's in, annoyingly, for a dealer, he does many things which we do, which is sort of excavate into the past of an object and, and give it provenance. I mean, and that's something which I've always enjoyed doing. You know, something can suddenly be at an auction. You think, hang on a minute, this has obviously got a history. Let's let's see what we can find out about it. Um, it more often, unfortunately, it happens just as you sold it. You then find out that it's got a provenance going back decades, if not centuries. Um, so Florent uh, and his team have been able have been giving really quite extraordinary um, work and giving back these objects their provenance. It's a it's a good thing, and that would seem as important as ever right now because obviously there are a lot of stories in the press about looting in war torn countries in the Middle East, um, and there's a lot of speculation that 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 they are entering the market even though the figures are a bit murky. So can you tell us a bit about that? Has, has that reinforced this um, commitment to provenances? And also, has it changed methods at all? Well, one of the things is there are these very large claims that have been made, uh, most of which are falling to pieces under any form of scrutiny, let alone close scrutiny. 
So there have been figures banded about of billions of dollars worth of antiquities every year flooding the market, which is it, it's absolutely impossible. Right. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't take it doesn't take much intelligence to sort of look at that and think it's impossible for an illegal market to be hundreds, if not thousands, of times greater than the than the what we would call the legal market. That is, it's the the things that. Um, known dealers are dealing with um and the 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 people who have promulgated these um figures they themselves are backtracking because they realize it's actually done them a great deal of damage um who are they <laughs> Uh, there's a there's a drive in certain areas of academia, um, I think in an ideological way, that they don't like the fact that um, uh, ancient art can be traded. Um, and that's the root, one of the root problems. Uh, and many of them have said that they um, feel that they want to make the ownership of an antiquity as um, socially unacceptable as wearing fur. So there's a strong drive to make what we do. And in fact, it's, it's something which has gone on forever. I mean, Hadrian used to collect antiquities and that's continued through the Renaissance times, through the Grand Tour period in the 18th century, through the 19th century, through the 20th century. So this is this is something which is very much part of the human psyche. The desire to own something from the past is somehow to link yourself to um, a wider world and a greater understanding of what mankind is and what civilization is and what art stands for. Has Has the approach to the provenance of antiquities shifted at all since these news reports about about uh, Syrian and other uh, works? Well, I think less in that particular is, instance. I think what has what has happened over the past that I've seen happen over the past ten years, past five years, particularly in the past four years, perhaps, is a much greater push to discover more about the object, um, perhaps. Um, and before one has purchased it. So you're constantly looking, constantly asking questions. Um, where is this from? When did your grandfather acquire it? Do you have any evidence of that acquisition? Is it perhaps in an old photograph in the family? Was it listed on the insurance schedule? Um, you can ask if you've got an, uh, an invoice, and there are certain very organised people who do have kept their invoices and the grandchildren have kept them rather than just being turfed out and put on a bonfire as unimportant because it's not like a car which comes with a logbook. Um, these are, these are things which are on people's shelves in their sitting rooms, you know, in the bedroom or wherever. They don't have their invoice with them all the time. And uh, one of the um, questions often sort of asked is why isn't there an export license from the country of origin? Um, which again is it's such an absurd um, thing to ask for. Many of the countries of origin didn't even have an export licensing system, or if it were in process, um, m many of the times people would then simply just lose that piece of paper, or the piece of paper might say something like um, twenty boxes of um, stuff, <laughs> which could mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we we have in certain circumstances got those um, export licenses from the 1940s from Egypt, for instance. And um, sometimes it can be quite specific and sometimes it can just be really vague. Um, but it's not surprising that a piece of paper um, over the past 20, 40, 50, 100 years has, has just disappeared. So tell me what items 
seem to be particularly popular at the moment? It's a difficult thing because many different items appeal to different people. But though people are fascinated by the the story of these items, you know, how how once great empires have crumbled and now we've just got fragments is 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 quite evocative. And the 20th century was uh, a time when sort of frag- we're used to fragment the sense of a fragmented history and, and of objects. So you start with cubism, where the picture plane breaks down, but then you have society breaking down. You have uh, walls breaking down the the power of countries. So we're so used to this idea of um, destruction and fragmentation that when we see um, fragments from history, it has a resonance. Old master drawings. You know, a fragment of an old master drawing can often be more evocative than the um, finished painting that it might relate to. So the so the much fabled crossover collector, the somebody who, as you say, is acquiring both contemporary paintings or film and video as well as yeah. antiquities, is a is a reality. Yeah, it's not a fable. It's a, it's a genuine person, a genuine group of, of people who, who buy things because their eye alights upon it. One of the one of the things about contemporary art specific, specifically is that it is a it's a tribal way of collecting. So what do you do when you buy your Basquiat or you buy your Twombly, as I mentioned before, or your Picasso, your Leger or your Matisse, you're buying into a tribe and you're putting your tribalness onto the wall. So when people walk into your apartment, they go, oh, he's got this and he's got that. And he's got this one too. It, they're stapling their bank account to the wall in, in essence. What happens with antiquities is that actually queers the whole pitch. People saying, what is this thing? Is it a reproduction from museum? So in a way, it makes these collectors a little bit edgier because the people going in, their compatriots, the people they want to impress, I think saying, you know, what the heck is this thing that's here? I like it. Should I like it? I don't know whether I should like it. And it's upsetting, which is what in essence, great contemporary art should be doing, which is unsettling you and making you ask questions and um, and making you see the world in a slightly different way. And we had a collector um, very close to buying an extremely important piece of um, uh, sculpture, bronze sculpture. And in the end, he was a billionaire. He has a huge building named after him in New York. He's not Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's got taste. And um, he couldn't buy it in the end because he he said his friends wouldn't know what it was. And it slightly took me aback because I thought, what the hell does that mean? His friends wouldn't know what. And why would that matter? This is fascinating. I'm interested in this idea that there's a sort of relative lack of connoisseurship among collectors now. Hmm. And I'm wondering, how does that affect your job how does that affect the trade is it actually to the detriment of the trade if there are fewer connoisseur collectors or actually is the broad range of kinds of collector better for the trade it's better for the better for the trade in in many respects what it does have and of course there are always fashions which come through like waves one of the things it's seemingly most affected is um uh, vessels vases black figure red figure greek vases which once upon a time were incredibly popular and um, an absolute mainstay of any collector of antiquities. And of course, we still sell them and we sell, you know, important pieces and less important pieces. But they don't, they seemingly, people find them a bit more difficult than they used to. And I kind of understand that. But at the same time, when you look at these vases from 5th, 6th century BC, if you think of them, if you stop looking at them as black and 
and tan colour vest containers and just look at what's on them and treat them as a work of art. They're extraordinary drawings. I always call them drawings. People talk about them being painted. I always see them much more as, as drawings. They are the most extraordinary things. Um, not always. Sometimes they're just absolutely awful. And you think, Jesus, that really shouldn't exist. Um, but quite a lot of the time, they're amazing. And um, that, so I'm surprised sometimes that they, these don't sell as swiftly as, as we feel that they deserve. So that connoisseurship, that connoisseurship, that sort of, I want one in every shape. I want one by every painter. I want a bronze sculpture of every Egyptian god. I want an example of every Roman emperor that has fallen away that sort of collecting that sort of slightly stamp collectory collecting has fallen away and people are much more likely to be visually ravished by a piece than wanting something for an academic reason you've you've argued strongly for a very a transparency of prices at art fairs yes can you tell me why and has your position been adopted by others through your arguments well i think i'm When I go to an art fair, obviously, I've got two hats on. One is me as a dealer and one is me as a possible purchaser. But when I go, I want to know how much the thing is. (laughs) And I think most people do. So why why hide that? And what annoys me sometimes, you can go and ask somebody, how much is this? And they go, oh, um, yeah, well, and you can see they're sizing you up. Um, can they get more th- out of you or, or are they just going to, are you just a waste of time? And I find that distinctly unappealing. And it's, it happens a lot in the contemporary art world, a lot. They may not even talk to you because you're not on the right list to be given a price. And we, we work at relatively inexpensive prices. Um, so, the recent art fair we did in New York, uh, Tefa Fall, uh, earlier this month, uh, in most inexpensive piece was $800, and our most expensive piece is $350,000. Well, $350,000 is quite a lot of money. I couldn't begin to afford anything that's $350,000. It's, it's a lot of dosh. But for most people, that's just work a day. That's just bottom of the range. Um, so we have to sell quite a lot in order to make our profit. Um, art fairs are jolly expensive they cost a lot of money take a lot of energy to do a lot of time so if I go into if I put my prices out there on each of the labels people are reassured they know that I'm not going to be giving them a price which is which is higher simply because they're the agent of shake so and so or simply because they're the art advisor for so and so and so and so they know I'm not loading it so I think it benefits me, it, and obviously that's the thing I'm most concerned about as as a as a managing director of a company. I hope it's a benefit to us as a company, but I think it benefits um, the clients as well because he's that client is able to feel reassured that we are genuine uh, people. What we're saying is is an actual price. It's not plucked out of thin air because they might be, we might be able to make ten, twenty, forty thousand pounds more. And people are fascinated that so much of what we have is is affordable. It's not outrageous because there's this whole idea, if it's ancient, it's a treasure. And if it's a treasure, it is priceless. And if it's priceless, it's got, they cannot begin to afford it. You mentioned that contemporary art dealers are collecting antiquities. Yes. Why? 
Did they? Did you get any sense of? I'm, I'm interested. You, you mentioned the, the, yeah. the sort of low prices, but are they collecting it for themselves? Or are they collecting it for their artists? For themselves. Yeah. And we have artists as well. I mean, some of the what it's now an old-fashioned phrase, of course, the YBAs. Some of those have been collecting from us um, for years, and they find it fascinating. Uh, often, I can't make the visual leap between their art and why they're buying mine, except on an intellectual level. General aesthetic level as well, that they love the thing. It doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to have to directly affect what they do in the way that Cycladic art would have affected Picasso or Modigliani. So, yeah, they, they, they buy it because they are fascinated that they can own... I, well, it gives them this edginess that they so many people would like, that sense. You've got bankers who are doing some of the most boring jobs in the world, and they often are some of the most boring people in the world. None of our clients, of course. But there are people out there who are exceedingly dull. You meet them at parties and they will just say, oh, have you seen my... Then they drop a name. Have you seen my... And they drop a name. You're just giving yourself this veneer, this sort of tortoise shell of um, edginess because, in essence, you're really quite dull. Um, (laughs) I shouldn't say these things, but it's true. I want to end by asking about Brexit. Do you anticipate that it will affect your business? And is there official an official position among antiquities dealers and the various associations on hard or soft Brexit? Britain has more art dealers than any of the other countries. And by us leaving Europe, we our ability to affect um, European law by our own um, arguments because we have such a strong um, range of art dealers our ability to affect European law is severely limited um, and we are sort of being cast adrift now, a lot of people saying oh we'll be able to make our own uh, laws um, about how we deal and it will be a much freer way of dealing but if Europe decide for some reason to bring in um, Uh, new laws about the movement of art we will have had no effect on that law or the discussions that have informed that law and that that does bother me um, a lot because well I think you just have to sit down and think there could be all sorts of reasons why they would want to have um, we've seen what's happened in Germany and that could be taken as a template for, for movements in, 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 in other countries or as a template for European law. And that's that's quite bothersome to me. Also, I don't know what the... We exhibited Tefaf uh, Maastricht in March, which is the, the biggest and one of the very best art fairs in the world. And it's very important to us as a company in terms of the money that we take there. What bothers me is how much paperwork there may now be involved in um, in organising that. Because for the moment, the only form of export licensing that we need to get into Europe is if it's important to this so country. To, to get into TIFA? No, just okay. to get into... Um, for the, the only customs barrier is sort of at Dover. So um, we have to have export licences for items of British um, um, uh, note, and we, but we don't need export licenses for the other, for, because there's free uh, movement of, of objects. 
And I, I'm just slightly worried that we may end up having to get export licenses for absolutely everything, that there may be uh, very uh, customs checks at the border could be very, they could take a huge amount of time, they could be onerous in that respect. Um, I just don't know, and I find that find that troublesome. Martin, thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much. Rose Wiley's show Quack Quack opened at the Serpentine Sackler Gallery this week. The 83-year-old artist has been painting in her studio in Kent for decades, to relatively little renown. But in this decade, she has suddenly become a leading figure in British painting, which has led to her being represented by the mega-gallery David's Werner. I went to the Serpentine to meet her. Rose, one thing that really struck me about this show is I always think of the Serpentine Sackler Gallery as being quite a difficult space for paintings, but you all seem to really work in this space. Can you tell me a bit about how you approach the display of your paintings? I think you're right. I think it is difficult. It's a sort of square of corridors with two uh, separate, fairly narrow pieces, very beautiful in between. Um, and I, I suppose that I quite like doing paintings which are quite long horizontally, and also I like stacking. I like go upwards, so that's quite convenient because the stacking ones could go into the powder rooms, which is the narrow connecting bits with brick, um, and the long horizontal ones could float along the corridors and go around corners because um, in fact I um, Melissa has put two long twink paintings oh, you know, uh, there are four of those so they could have gone on uh, around the building so that that was that's happy that's a very good um, for me it's fortunate one I like the building it's got no steps. I love it having no steps because it's got no status. It has got massive status, if you <laughs> understand, but it hasn't got a physical, like, tote, you know, steps. Yes. Um, you mean a kind of an imposing quality? It's, it's immediately, it's in the park. It's Anyway, so I like that. I like the building. I love bricks. Um, but you, you are... Right, it's not... Um, immediately easy to deal with and a lot of people have said that the paintings have pushed the walls out so that the narrow interior powder rooms seem much wider suddenly than than they've sometimes been before. I think that's very nice if the paintings are doing that. I mean paintings don't have to do that but the fact that they are doing it is is good and then they can link all the way around which is the fact that I... (coughs) I often work on bare canvas, means that they can link, because the images on them float rather than going to the edges of the painting and forming a, a clear rectangle which ends, and then they wouldn't. You can't bump them together. But if you paint um, very particularly and sickly images within the painting frame, I was wondering about that open quality that the gallery does have I mean it feels so much more airy than any of the shows I've seen here so far and it's, it, it is about that space in your paintings there's a very peculiar very enticing space that you're 
paintings have. Can you tell me something about that, that push and pull between the bare canvas and the, and the, the very loaded information that you put on it? I do like, <coughs> I like contrast. So you get, if you clog up the surface of the painting and paint all over it, um, it becomes a continuous surface somehow, even if you put a bright colour on it. But if you leave gaps of unpainted and unprimed, because I, I size them, but I don't prime them, um, you get maximum contrast and you can also get edges to your forms. You know the ones done with hands? The edges are terribly important because I didn't use a brush. and I, They're not linear, they're just pushed and... Um, that's why the image keeps getting bigger because you lose the edge and then you go on. But I think contrast is um, very useful for painting. You know, it's the difference between life and death. It's movement and static. It's um, which is also why I like working from films because they move and the painting doesn't. But the you know the subject is taken. But the contrast is important. Um, and you can get it to colour. You can get it to. Um, you know, thin paint and thick, but to have bare unpainted canvas is um, it's a kind of shriek for contrast, I think. I wonder about how you choose that everyday language, you know, the screen from the match, from match of the day, the soccer well, player. I like everyday because it's shared and people, it's not um, arty, you know, it's not stuck away, it's not distance, Every, it's high street. I like, I like the whole business of everybody knowing about stuff and not distancing and being, you know, extreme erudition. I mean, it can be a pain because there's no connection and nobody wants to know about it anyway. So I think connection, connecting is good. Also, the the images of footballers was available. It's constantly banging at you through the television, through the newspapers, it's, you know, looking at me off the floor because I have... So, um, it's shared, available. Um... And it's not particularly because I like football, because I, you know, I, I, but I do like football <coughs> colours, like emblems, or banners, uniforms, which is why I do queens and stuff, because I, I like the shape, not because I like, I'm not a monarchist, it's nothing to do with uh, monarchy or um, privilege, or it's because I like the shape. I like how it looks, so I like football again. So that was your question, wasn't it? Why do yeah. I use yeah. football as films? Films are r- relatively cheap. They're cheaper than opera or ballet, aren't they, I think? Yeah. I think cheaper, the ticket, I think, yeah. yeah, that's what I thought. Uh, uh, also, t- uh, football, you don't have to pay the ticket. You can see it on television all a lot. Um, so the cinema is something we all, a lot of people see. So if you use a film... People are always interested if they've seen something themselves and then they see somebody else, you know, a repeat. They see it coming up again. So you you know, you tap in you tap into proper interest rather than assumed you know, interest cultural interest it's real. You know, they like Uma Thurman, they like or they didn't like Kilbill, they looked violent or whatever. But it gives an entry into into the picture. I think to see what you, they can see what you've done with Win Rooney or whatever you know. Oh, I don't like where you've done him or you know. it's shared. 
open. And and tell me about how you go about choosing which films you take imagery from, because it's it's really broad, isn't it? You've got Werner Herzog, and then you've got something like Syriana, which is a sort of I Hollywood. I just have to like the image. Suddenly, it's not the story, it's not the plot, it's not the psychological moment, it's not, uh, you know, it's how suddenly something is just an um, exciting image, and I think I'll have a go at that. And um, I think traditionally, artists who work from other artists, to work from a non, from another art form. Uh, I've just recently learned this word, it's ekphrasis, and I think it's kind of a rather smart word. Um, it's trouble is nobody knows what it means, but it just means you're working, you're doing an art form again in your own, you, you, you're, you're taking one art, art form and making another one from it, or with it, or you know. so, um, so I like to use films because they're an art form, and I'm very, um, I think that it's a terrific art form. And and is the process of of transcribing that imagery, of transforming it into paint, is that an easy process, or is it is it is it is it a very difficult process? Well, I, um, I was thinking about it. You, you could be watching. I was talking to someone a little while ago. You're watching a film. You're completely happy. It was entertainment, and suddenly you think that's a marvelous thing. I'm going to use that. I'm going to paint, and that wrecks the film a bit because you no longer have an independent, neutral attitude to the film. It becomes work, it becomes it becomes torture, it becomes something you've got to do, and you're driven into it. Um, and then you find you can't do it, and then you try again, and you still can't do it, and you try... Anyway, the memorable image fades, but then you you go on with the drawing of the memory, and so it goes through stages, so it gets filtered through the subjectivity of the artist, which stops it being slavish copy, which I don't have much time for, um, it's something else, and, and then it develops, and uh, and it, it relates. You can tell people it's that film, or, which is I don't know. It's quite a productive way of working. It's a bit stupid because you're doing. Did you see the desert painting? Yes. Well, I'm doing two shots, which with a camera can be click click, but with a painting, you've got to physically do it, and it takes quite a bit of doing because there's a lot of paint on it. So it's slightly stupid, but I think I've told you I'm conflicted. Uh, I like economy. I like the film, but I quite like the time it takes to do it as well. That's an, always an interesting question to ask painters. I think. Do you like painting? Do you like the oh, process? I don't know. I think it's difficult. To, I think it's a, it's compulsive. It's um, it does drive you kind of into. You just got to keep. You just think about nothing else. And then when it's done, you're either not sure, but if you think it's okay, then you you feel good, and that's nice. You sort of float a bit, but not for long, because then you think, well, it's not as good as I thought, and better scrap it, paint it out. It's It's full of hazards. Thank you so much. Rose Wiley's exhibition Quack Quack is at the Serpentine Sackler Gallery in London until the 11th of February. Speaking of the Sackler family, in December's print edition of the Art Newspaper and on theartnewspaper.com, you can read how museums and galleries funded by the Sacklers, like the Serpentine and the Victorian Albert Museum, have responded to a New Yorker investigation into a major source of the family's wealth, the highly addictive opioid OxyContin. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, and if you have a moment, please post a rating or review. 
You can also let us know what you think on Twitter or Facebook at The Art Newspaper and follow us on Instagram at theartnewspaper.official. Next week, among other things, we'll be reporting from the Art Basel Miami Beach Fair. See you then, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.